Greetings, fellow human beings, and in fact, any other sentient listeners of the near or distant future. I'm Paul Mackey, and I'm what's known as an idiot, at least as far as this podcast is concerned. It's day 22 of the dog days, and outside it is a Duluth hot day of 83 degrees, and I'm sweating like a pig. We're about to have a large cow. No, not Salem Sioux. This one is the world's largest talking cow. And you'll meet her in the episode Chatty Bell. Really Big Things. A Serial by Paul Mackey. Episode 11. Chatty Bell. Chris was disturbed. He hovered right at the edge of consciousness. He was slightly cold and his head hurt. He could hear but not make out murmured speech between a man and a woman. There was something odd about the rhythm of the conversation Chris couldn't put his finger on. None of this was disturbing him. Chris was on the road with his old college roommate Jeremy. Chris's sister, Jeremy's girlfriend, had asked that he take Jeremy out on the road while she got her stuff from Jeremy's apartment and moved in with a lawyer she assisted far beyond the normal call of duty around the office. Jeremy was gruff and combative and had developed a recreational pill habit while on the road. None of this was disturbing Chris. Things began to move out of Chris's control. He admitted the full story of the trip to Jeremy, and as penance, drove hundreds of miles out of his way. He didn't even particularly want to. In a moment of weakness, he'd taken the last of Jeremy's pills, and some tolerance or another from his college days prevented any sort of effects, good or ill. Chris wasn't disturbed by any of this, either. Mildly disturbing was the sunburn. No, that wasn't quite right. He set aside the sunburn for a moment. His head throbbed and he tentatively opened his eyes. He was in a dimly lit room. Large, indistinct, blotchy blue shapes towered over him. Chris sighed and noted by his visible breath the room was definitely not heated. Hey, that one's waking up, said Jack. No. Suzette paused. I'd be more concerned about the other one. Again with the strange speech pattern. Oh well. Then there was the sight of that building, gray and somewhat murky, suddenly flashing to bright orange and flying debris while Chris watched helplessly from across the street. Chris could see it all in slow motion in his head. Oh, wait. Was it that it actually happened in slow motion? Jeremy was thrown out ahead of the blast on... a shockwave? Then the glowing orange moved quickly outward hot against Chris's skin, enveloping the row of cars in front of the building and finally knocking down the witnesses, including Chris. In fleeting consciousness, Chris had seen a ball of flame boiling into the sky. Then, inexplicably, the fireball returned to the ground as though pulled down. The flames were all sucked into the wreckage of the museum's foundation along with the flaming hulks of the cars and a couple of nearby trees. Then the roar of the explosion cut off like it was switched off a low rumble of returning echoes from surrounding countryside. Chris had turned his head to see Jeremy lying prone nearby before passing out. This, Chris thought, was clearly what was disturbing him. He relaxed a bit at the realization and slipped back out of consciousness. We've got to get these guys in to Ivo, insisted Eric. Well, it's a couple hours wait until our window is open, said Suzette. They were sitting in the moldering ruins of a motel room. 
The design scheme of the room inexplicably featured tall, fuzzy blue columns on either side of a round bed. The fuzz of the columns was coming off in clumps, as the roof had given way some time ago, exposing them to the elements. Hey, that one's waking up, said Jack. Jeremy's friend was groggily looking around. Is that going to be a problem for you, Suzette? No. Suzette paused. I'd be more concerned about the other one. So I'm confused. Jack turned his attention back from the men laying on the bed. Why can't we just go straight to Ivo? We need to be. Suzette searched for the right word. Shifted. She said finally. To find our way to Ivo. Uh, isn't that what the pills are supposed to do? No, not exactly. The pills, interrupted Eric, have functions beyond what we're going to tell you. You don't know everything, and you don't want to know everything. Ivo has a pocket universe, and we have to be shifted in phase with it before we can gain access. Chris awoke as he felt a jolt. He was in the car again, in the passenger seat. Sorry about that," said the driver, a man in a jean jacket. "Bad brakes. Did a bit of a curb check. Can you walk?" Chris nodded slowly, squinting in the bright sunlight. "Good. Oh, uh, I'm Jack. This is Suzette, and oh, yeah, right." Chris looked to the back seat, where Suzette nodded, and Jeremy was slumped unconscious. Oh yeah, right," mocked Chris. "My unconscious friend Jeremy, of course. We've met." "We're going to get him help," said Suzette. Chris looked around. There was a tall yellow peaked roof, a large cow statue, and a truck trailer claiming to house the world's largest cheese. "We planning on asking Wisconsin Public Radio for help?" asked Chris. "Nope," said Jack. "Actually, the cow." A small child was clambering around on the sign identifying Chatty Bell as the world's largest talking cow, as his mother stood nearby. She took one look at the four people approaching, dirty, battered, one apparently unconscious, and quickly turned to her child. "Let's go home, and I'll fix you a root beer and milk." "Cool, just like Mason Rocket drinks on TV." The kid hopped happily away, and the mother followed hurriedly behind. "All right," said Eric. Get everyone in front of the cow here, right in front of the sign. Six of you," said the cow. "You know, you have to push the button to hear the cow talk," said Chris. "Uh, no, five," said Eric. Five humans," said the cow, "and a cat." "Cat," said Jack. "No," said Chris. "Cow." Eric leaned over the sign and looked down. "Ah,、uh, Jack, come shoo this cat away." Jack reached gingerly down and was able to take the cat by the scruff of the neck. Sorry, no pocket for Kitty. Jack rejoined Suzette, Eric, the unconscious Jeremy, and Chris. Okay, five," said the cow. "Say cheese." A brilliant blue flash enveloped them all. Chris couldn't see it, but even he felt the tingling of its passing. All right, back to the car," said Eric. "Back to the car," said Jack. "You people are really strange." Said Chris. You have been listening to Really Big Things by Paul Mackey. Suzette was read by Darcy Zepernick. Music is Chronodermis by Nanochrist. Look them up at www.nanochrist.com. Please send comments and feedback to reallybigthings at gmail.com.
Well, at first we took a detour to an impossible location, where we see things initially from Chris's perspective, complete with an absence of seeing or hearing Eric. I don't name the location, but it is, in fact, Johnson Creek, Wisconsin, in a motel room that couldn't have actually existed for the story, as it had been burned for firefighter training around 2001. This was the Gobbler Motel, originally operated with the Gobbler Supper Club across the street. Look it up, if you dig kitsch. I'm certain I'd change the exposition in some way if I start editing and expanding this. Here it makes it sound like Jack is just on the fringe of everything, but later I decided he had a far more central role to play. Well, that's the trouble with putting out each chapter serially as you write it. It's not a great way to make things coherent. But we are getting into the Wisconsin arc, complete with a pocket universe and everything. The mom at Chatty Bell is notable sci-fi author Mer Lafferty, and I had to get a Mason Rocket reference in somewhere. Then, there's a gag that includes both my late cat Lily and an unnecessary early 90s music reference. Did you get it? I had a particular fun re-listening to Chris's utter befuddlement during this whole chapter. Well, I watched the next That 80s Show episode Double Date, and it equally could have been called Blind Date. Let's get into it. The record store has a new computerized concert ticket system for a moment of amusement when Tuesday enters, sands her spiked hair. Apparently today she would have used cornstarch if she had any, instead of egg whites and spit, as she had mentioned in a prior episode. Roger momentarily hits on Tuesday without recognizing her, then once that's cleared up, he says his date for the reggae festival fell through, the titular double date. Tuesday says she'll arrange a new date, though Corey didn't think she knew anyone that would work, admitting he's never actually met any of her friends. Side note, does she still live in her car? Was that ever addressed on screen? Back at the house, Sophia presents RT with actor contracts he failed to sign. He doesn't understand they're for a commercial, and Sophia explains it's a longer-form commercial that RT takes to calling an informational commercial. Once he warms to the idea, he realizes there'll be lots of fit female models on the set, and he wants to be there. Turns out the set is at the college Katie dropped out of and still never told her dad. Tuesday implies to Corey that she's got Roger's date all lined up, then while on a bank errand gets the teller to be the date. Roger and Patty the bank teller appear to be an ideal match. RT decides he's going to work with the cast as a spokesperson. Katie arrives at the set ready to tell her dad about dropping out. She runs into a professor who asks about her dropping out, and the professor says if she hated her accounting major, she should consider changing to environmental science. Roger is tiring of Patty's one-upping his every trait. Corey suggests Roger tries dancing. Tuesday admits to Corey she didn't know Patty ahead of the date. Roger and Patty bond in a dance-off. Katie fails to tell RT she dropped out, but at least she tells him that she hates business and wants to pursue environmental studies. Corey is cross with Tuesday about the whole Patty situation and asks her to warn him before she does anything crazy. Roger disappears all night with Corey's car, and the next morning shares that things got wild with Patty, including handcuffs he's still wearing. They must have been some kind of hobbyist cuffs, if you know what I mean. As Tuesday is able to get them off of Roger's wrist, then she cuffs Corey's hands together behind her back as a joke to end the episode. The high point, I would say Eddie Shin finally got a chance to really shine as Roger, and he kind of steals the episode. The low point, I know it's RT's role to be the, pardon my French, pussyhound, but it felt a little over the top this time around. So, who won, who lost? Looks like Roger both won and lost. Clearly, at some point, Patty cuffed him and was not there when he came to in the morning. Is it an anachronism? 
Infomercials in their modern form were allowed after a revision of FCC regulations in 1984. It's a pretty close thing for them to be up and producing an infomercial already in this episode, so it's a maybe. What worked? Again, it's finding a nice balance between the period-appropriate content and the timeless character interplays. Why does it suck? I'm starting to think this series may not have sucked. I haven't looked to see if anyone's done a post-mortem as to why it did not continue after this season, but sucking may not have been the primary reason. So the next episode is Punk Club. Perhaps Corey is finally going to meet some of Tuesday's friends? Happy hunting! You have been listening to the One Idiot's Thoughts On podcast, produced by Paul Mackey in association with QuadrupleZ.com. Theme music is Too Good by Jack Mangan and is used by permission from him. If you would like to hear other podcasts by me, you might try The Ghostlight Podcast, a completed intro cast about the TV series Slings and Arrows, or Idiotcast, an intro cast for the TV series Supernatural. Both can be found on fine podcasting listening software everywhere or at quadruplez.com. Let's make our